this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello everybody and welcome to New Books in Folklore, which is one of the many podcast channels you can find on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Hopkin. I'm one of the hosts of New Books in Folklore. And today my guest is Anand Pralad. Anand Pralad is, amongst other things, an author, a poet, a musician, and a filmmaker. He's also the director of creative writing at the University of Missouri, where he teaches folklore, film, creative writing, and disability studies. Today, he's going to be talking with us about his recent award-winning memoir, The Secret Life of a Black Aspie. Anam Pralad, welcome to New Books in Folklore. Thank you, Rachel. So normally at this stage, I ask the interviewee how they came to be a folklorist, but in many ways, your book is about that, as well as about lots of other things. So we will just dive straight into the book. And can you tell us what was the impetus behind The Secret Life of a Black Aspie? And Aspie, I should say, for listeners who don't know, is a reference to Asperger's syndrome, which is part of the autism spectrum. Is that right? Yes. So yes, tell us how this came about. Well, I originally started writing it because I needed to write it for myself. And so for some years, as I was writing, I really wasn't thinking of it as a book. And I wasn't thinking of it necessarily that this was going to become a memoir. But I had gotten to a point where I simply needed for myself to express my experience related to being on the spectrum. So that was the impetus. Um, And it was only years later, as I continued to write, that the idea occurred to me that it could become a book. And even after that idea occurred to me, I still wasn't thinking that it would be a book that would ever be published. So when I entered the book in the contest that it won, I and I got the news that it had won, it was kind of a shock. And I thought about actually not publishing it and not accepting the award. And my um, wife suggested that publishing the book would be helpful for a lot of other people. So I shouldn't think of it just in terms of myself. So I said yes, and and the the book was published. So so that was the impetus. It's a memoir that covers 
most of your life, including your growing up on a plantation in rural Virginia. But it was a very long time before you were diagnosed with Asperger's. That's right. So can you tell us a little bit about your childhood in this rural area of Virginia as uh, an African-American with Asperger's, but not knowing you had Asperger's? Well, in my mind, my childhood was, let's say, not unusual. But that's in my mind, because that was all that I knew. So, um, and I don't have a point of comparison to say, well, my life was different in this way from anyone else who was growing up in a similar area at that point historically. Um, and I, maybe that's one of the challenges of actually being on the spectrum is I don't have a good sense of what life is like for people who are not on the spectrum. So I would say, well, I had a, I had a, a, a normal childhood, but of course, uh, that's not what my mom would say necessarily or other people who knew me. And in retrospect, the way that I've come to think about it is it, it was unusual. Some of the challenges were I was sick all the time. So um, I, was, I spent a lot of my childhood in the bed and I had a lot of different illnesses that never was, they were never diagnosed and they were never diagnosed because growing up in a segregated era, we didn't have any really good uh, medical care. So when people were sick, unless it was something fairly serious, they didn't think in terms of going to a doctor. There was a white doctor in that area in the nearest town, but we didn't we didn't go there just because we got sick. We went there when something was more serious. So um, so I don't even know what a lot of those illnesses were. They sometimes had, let's say, folk names, and I don't remember what, what my parents and grandparents called them. I just remember that I was sick all the time. So that really stands out in my mind is the most unusual thing about my childhood is that I couldn't do a lot of things that other children could do. And when I did go outside and play or whatever, I would often fall ill. And then I wouldn't be able to either go outside or go to school for a period of time. Hearing that makes it sound like you had a really isolated childhood, but actually it seems you were surrounded by spirits that populated your life then and continue to do so. Yeah, I didn't experience it as isolating. I experienced it as I was having a lot of quiet time that I really needed. And in that time, I could, I could relate to spirits, as you mentioned, but I could relate to other things like the birds outside or the clouds that I could see out the window 
or the wind that might blow through the window or the butterflies that I might see. So I didn't have the feeling of being isolated because I didn't have the sense that having company necessarily meant having people around. Right. And of course, you were also dealing with this overload on your senses, because that's part of how the disorder manifests for you. And you have also synesthesia, which I understand is kind of mingling of the senses where one sense causes you to experience something via another sense as well. So colors, for example, are very strong. Yeah. And I know you've got an excerpt specifically describing the sensory overload that you experience. I wonder if I could ask you to read that. Sure. I can I can read that. Um, most of the time, I felt overwhelmed, overstimulated, frustrated, out of control. Things around me moved too fast. People said things and moved on as I waded through the multitude of sounds around me, trying to separate out their words. Until I was around eight years old, the outlines of shapes around me were fuzzy and things often seemed to melt into each other. When I first rode on a roller coaster as a young adult, I recognized the noxious, sick feeling of speed and fear as what I had been feeling normally most of my childhood. Almost everything made me sick. My own emotions made me physically sick. The emotions of others around me made me sick. The thoughts of others made me sick. I could hear their thoughts. I could see them floating through the house like crowds of puppets going back and forth across the stage, wearing countless faces, carrying countless weights, like bodies on a crowded street. My thoughts would be lost in the multitude, and I could seldom find them. I came apart like a sack of grain, everything spilling out. I would lie in bed, an empty body searching desperately to be filled. Touching the wrong spirits made me sick. The cries of objects like the pillows, hose, pots, axes, knife blades, doorknobs, glasses, coins, buttons, tables, and lamps made me sick. The knives were always crying, marry me to the bright blood blossoms of your palms, your wrists, your arms, the insides of your thighs. The high pitch of glasses crying almost made me scream. The snoring of the plants when they thought no one could hear them often made me sick. Sometimes it healed me, but the way they shrieked when they heard footsteps approaching made me tiptoe. Sometimes it made me stand still and not move at all, just so they wouldn't be afraid. The brightness of sunshine was the same way, the loud brightness of the sunshine. Some days it struck me down like fire burns up a blade of dried grass. Other days it propped me up like the wood beneath a scarecrow. That's incredibly evocative. It sounds terrifying in a way, but it also, I think it it leads to a, a sense of the richness of the world in a way that perhaps people without this disorder don't experience. Well, I'll use your words, a, a rich terror. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. A rich terror. But it's not just terror, is it? Because there are other richnesses that come to you because of this no, it's not just Torah at all. It's, it's. Uh, in fact, I experience it as 
at, at kind of uh, pleasure. It's more like too intense pleasure because those sensations on the one hand are painful, but on the other hand, there's something very uh, pleasurable about them. You describe in the book that you were, like you said, you were sick for quite a long time and missed a lot of school, but even so, you were academically very advanced. How did that come about, do you think? Well, I just had a knack for catching on to things that we learned in school really quickly. So um, most of the time, whatever we went over in class, I got it right away, and so most of the time that the teacher was spending on it, I was more or less in my own world, and I would tune back in when we started to work on something new. So I I don't know why that was the case, but I just had an ability to to get things really almost intuitively, so it didn't take me a lot of time. And I like the way you describe your perspective on things, because you say something like, you never took knowledge to be real or absolute. Two plus two equals four, but what is two? D-O-G spells dog, but it's not the same as a dog. It's a word. It's like semiotic as a high schooler. And around the age of 12, I think you started to develop friendships with other people as opposed to the spirits that surrounded you? Yes. How did that come about? Uh, that's a good question. I, In all likelihood, it was a combination of contact with some of my cousins who lived near us in that area where I grew up. It was a combination of that and some I begin to, you might say, be able to feel affection from people other than my family and to recognize when other people liked me or when they were feeling affectionate toward me. And that fascinated me. And that's a part of what made me to begin to be more interested in, let's say, talking to other people or um, learning how to laugh was a part of that process because most of the growing up before then, my sense of humor was completely removed from the sense of humor of people around me. But I... I began to be interested in how people laughed, the things they laughed at. And and the other part, I think, was I just liked the sound and the kind of colors that certain people's voices evoked. And that made me want to be around those people and hear them talk. Right. 
Because a little bit earlier, when you had been going through this phase of sickness, the long phase of sickness, school had been kind of a trial, it sounded like. You described the classrooms as being so light. The bells exploded in my belly and made me want to puke because of this high sensitivity. So I'm curious, how do you think you managed to stop reacting like that? Did you just get used to it over time? I don't know that I got used to it. I think as we moved up in the grades, some things changed, such as in, in elementary school, we were in the same classroom the whole day. And once we got to to middle school, I think they called it middle. I'm not sure if they call it middle or junior, junior high. Then we changed classes. Once we could change classes, there was always periods in the day when I could find quiet time outside in between going from one class to another. And and that really helped because being in the same classroom all day, it was more like being trapped. And whatever smells were in that room, I had to deal with them the whole day. And whatever hiccups that might have been in the lighting, I had to deal with it all day. Whereas once we begin to have each class in a different classroom, then I really only had to deal with whatever sensory overload I might have been experiencing for an hour or hour and half or hour and 15 minutes, and then it was going to be over. You have a chapter called The White Castle. The White Castle, is that high school? Yes, that's high school. And before then, you'd be mostly surrounded by black people, but at this stage, you were in a minority, and you became very popular within the school, it sounded like, and also asked to do lots of, take on lots of duties as an African-American student, which seems to have been a bit of a burden eventually it was uh, it was it was nice at first it felt good because people recognized me and they wanted to talk to me and they liked me um but eventually it was just it was so much that i ended up having a nervous breakdown Right. You said the bad witch kind of enveloped you or something like that. Yeah, because that was the way the old people in my community, that was the way they explained the kind of illness that I had as I was having a nervous breakdown, like night sweats and being paralyzed, not being able to move and um, just generally falling apart. So that the their belief was that meant a witch was riding me at night, and that was causing my me to kind of disintegrate emotionally and mentally. So the bad witch riding you at night could be categorized as a folk belief, and I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how you became interested in folklore. Well. I was always interested in it because 
I was always around old people growing up, maybe more than around people my age. My great-grandmother helped to raise me, and she was one of the people that I I felt the closest to and I felt the most comfortable around, partly because she could be around me and not necessarily talk. And she was just sort of more intuitive about a lot of things. But she was always telling stories. And she was always using proverbs. And every night after dinner, my grandmother, my granny, would tell a lot of stories. And so we would um, sit around and listen to stories and laugh a lot and things like that. And a lot of those stories had to do with things that had happened to people on the plantation. So I was learning not just stories, I was learning kind of the oral history of of my family going back to the slavery uh, period. So I was always interested in folklore. It's just that I didn't know that folklore was a, a subject that you could actually study until I got to college and took a folklore class. Before we get to that, I wonder if you could read a little bit about your childhood growing up on that plantation. Okay, I'll read an excerpt about that. When the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, the Wickhams kept most of the slaves on as domestic or field hands. They kept the kingdom we had built and gave us nothing. They were never sorry. They never believed they had done anything wrong. To us, that was the essence of whiteness. I grew up watching the descendants of the slave owners pass by daily on the road that led out of the plantation, going to and from town. Sometimes they would wave at us. We'd wave back. Hi, slave owners. The road was dirt hard and bald in spots that glistened in the sun like foreheads. There were dips and potholes and spots. When it was dry, the dust from our car tires followed cars like trains of smoke. The dust got on everything, the shrubs along the road, on our skin, on hard surfaces of wood and glass in the house, down our throats. The road was like a tunnel below archways of tall trees. Fields of soybeans or corn ran along one side most of the way from Route 54 to our house. Woods ran along the other side and then a neighbor's house, woods and fields. I walked by run-down slave quarters. I heard stories all the time about slavery. It was just yesterday. My daddy's daddy worked in the Wickham's dairy. My daddy's mama worked in the big house. She gathered eggs, churned butter, made biscuits, cleaned floors, did laundry. She cooked in a big iron skillet. My granny's mama worked in the big house. Her husband worked in the fields. I heard stories about my cousins and uncles and aunts and grandmothers and grandfathers and things that happened on the plantation. I saw their spirits all the time, walking in the yard, sitting under the elm tree. Sometimes I would go and sit with them to feel their quietness. It was like falling into a soft blanket, into the space where no one blinked, no one breathed. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. 
So what was college like for you? Well, in the beginning, college was very difficult because I was I was I was really recovering from the nervous breakdown I had in high school. But I wasn't recovering very well because I didn't have any help. So when I first got to college, I was still having problems like really bad night sweats, periods of being paralyzed, uh, crying all the time, not being able to concentrate, being really depressed. So when I first got there, dealing with those things happening to me, and then being in a totally new environment, was it was just too overwhelming. So I actually I withdrew from college and and left without telling anyone. I eventually came back, but um, that was the beginning of college. And then when I got back, a teacher, one of my professors took me to a therapist, and that really began the process of of recovering. And, and it was then that I started being able to uh, see some value in college and, and maybe around my junior year, I started to meet people and to, to have friends. So the, the first two years were just a um, pretty dark period. Yeah, you describe feeling like Carrie in the film based on the Stephen King novel, or like the Elephant Man. It yeah. sounds terrible. It was pretty bad. But then you go on from there to this chapter called The Purple Time, and you're now in Berkeley in California, and you're remembering how to be happy. Yeah, California, when I first moved there, um, I did feel happier right away. I felt happy because the natural landscape was friendly. The ocean made me feel calm and the color of the sky and the clouds and the tones of green and the trees and the grass things like that calmed me and so that was my first reaction to being in in california in the bay area it wasn't really the people and the places. It was the, the colors and sounds and shapes of things in the natural environment that I just felt really at home in. It sounds like you moved into a kind of community where meditation was quite a big thing, spirituality. Do you think that played into your feeling of happiness as well? Well, it did, but that came later in my time in California. Um, by then, I had I had a number of relationships, and I had um, gone to Berkeley and then to UCLA for my my MA and PhDs. Um, 
so all that that period leading up to the commune it wasn't all happy <laughs> there was that was there was quite a a a lot of um hard times right. in, in that period we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night ember hot and icy cold the rage of the earth we made this curse carved it in the blood on our backs we did not see we could not but she did and in the end what will i become senwa saga hellblade 2 play it now with game pass did you get i mean being a graduate student myself phd candidate i'm, I'm curious to know if you got stressed out by the same sorts of things that people without Asperger's get stressed out by, you know, the deadlines, the writing, the imposter syndrome, things like that? Um, I don't think those were the main things that stressed me out because, well, a couple of reasons. One is when I was in graduate school, I didn't understand the significance of being in graduate school. I went back to graduate school because I thought it would give me time to write and because being in school was a safe kind of environment for me and I understood the routine and I understood what was expected and people usually talked in quiet tones in an academic environment. So I wasn't going back to to graduate school because I really wanted a graduate degree or because I was imagining a certain career. I was going back because it was an environment that I was familiar with and I was comfortable in and it would give me time to to write and read and to, let's say, be in my own world. But I never really had much worry about, for example, writing papers or or anything like that. Um, I just sort of, I did the academic work, but I didn't really think a lot about it in, in, in the way that I would suppose uh, most graduate students do. And I wasn't focused on what my professors thought of my work because I wasn't thinking that I would do anything in the future that would make it matter. So, so those weren't really my stresses in, in graduate school. Got it. It sounds like you were more stressed when you left graduate school because suddenly the structure was taken away. That's absolutely true. And I didn't know what I was going to do, or, or, or I didn't know what to do. I didn't really know how to apply for a job. I didn't know what job I could do. Um, so I was kind of lost. So this is the period in which you went to live in a commune, right? I did. Um, the Rajneesh commune in Oregon. I. I didn't go there immediately. Immediately when I left 
graduate school and at um, UCLA, I moved up north with, and I was living with, uh, um, with a partner who had been also a graduate student at UCLA while I was there. And we were, were just doing creative things. I was playing music and writing, and she was doing choreographed dances, and we were both very interested in spiritual things, so we did a lot of exploration of different spiritual groups. And that led to me finding my way to Rajneesh. And once I found my way to him, then I wanted to go to the commune in Oregon. Um, I did go uh, several times. I wasn't able to really live there because I couldn't afford it. But I would um, live in the commune's houses in Berkeley and then periodically take the trip to Oregon and stay for a while and do a lot of meditations there. And it was through this that you met your first wife. Yes, because she was a sannyasin also in that um, movement. So a sannyasin is a disciple of Rajneesh. It is. I mean, it generally it means a, a, a spiritual disciple who's devoted to a, a particular path. So uh-huh. any 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 followers of a particular guru would be sannyasins. Right. And you had a son. I did. Um, my, my first son, Nick, was born. And my wife and I actually had a, a house that was kind of a commune house in San Francisco. And our son was born in that house. But it sounded like you and your wife didn't actually really know each other tremendously well when you got married and had a child. I think you're right. Surviving and being in relationships seem to be two different things. Surviving and being black with autism spectrum disorder, ASD, in cross-racial relationships seem to be many different things. Yes. Um, no, we didn't know each other really well. There was an assumption that many of us in the, in the movement made that because we were all in the movement and we shared this great love for for Rajneesh and we were all meditating and our sort of spiritual worldviews were aligned, we we kind of jumped the conclu- to the conclusion that that meant that everything else about us would also be aligned. And so it wouldn't matter who you married as long as they were from the group because, of course, you would be totally compatible. And, of course, that really wasn't wasn't the case. That was a kind of, uh, I guess, naive way of thinking about it, about relationships. But I don't think I was the only one who who ended up thinking about them that way. Oh, I'm sure not, no. Around this time, you're also beginning to teach quite a bit in schools around the Bay Area. You say you learned to wear professional man blackness. And you also talk about feeling secure in grey concrete, but also maybe somewhat trapped. So you're in these grey concrete institutions like schools and colleges. 
and having mixed feelings about them. How did you relate to teaching? Did you enjoy it from the beginning or was it difficult? Well, there were things I enjoyed about teaching and I had always taught. I started teaching when I was um, a teenager. I started teaching Sunday school. And then when I was in undergraduate school, I taught in the Poet in the Schools program in Richmond, sometimes in school, sometimes in the prison. And so it, one of the things that, that I liked about teaching was I knew a lot of things about a lot of subjects, and teaching gave me an opportunity to talk about them. Um, but I also enjoyed it because I enjoyed like having other people interested in those subjects and interested in learning and interested in having certain kinds of conversations. But the different teaching environments, I guess you might say, pose sets of challenges that um, in, in some cases were difficult to, to overcome, like teaching in elementary school. I loved my students. I just, I loved their energy, I, their personalities, all of the little things that they would constantly come up with. But it was overstimulating because there were so many voices all the time in an elementary school, and there were the constant bells, and there were all of the sensory stimulation. The, uh, the lights were overstimulating because they were the fluorescent lights that buzzed, and that sound kind of grated on me. The smells in the schools, and I was very sensitive to the to the smells. So, if you have a class of thirty students, then each student is going to be sort of like a little uh, country of of a variety of different scents, and all 30 of them together for an entire day in the same room. And by the end of the day, that's a little bit overwhelming. So I, there were things I loved about teaching, but at the same time, it was a challenge. And the, one of the biggest challenges was I don't really like to talk. I find talking for very long to be really challenging. And as a teacher, you have to talk. It, it, it's, it's sort of required, and you usually have to talk a lot. And, and teaching primary through sec, K through 12, one has to talk at times that one didn't decide on it. So if, if, if it's a college classroom, you have pretty much control over when, when you talk. You can 
structure your class so that for the first half hour of an hour, students are working on projects in small groups. And then the second half an hour, they're reporting on what they worked on, which means that as a instructor, one wouldn't need to talk very much that whole hour. But on um, elementary school and and junior high school and high school, every so often a student's going to do something that means you have to talk whether it's acting out or whether it's may I go to the bathroom or, or, or that person hit me or, you know, those kinds of things. So it, that that's one of the biggest things that I have found difficult about being a teacher is I don't really like talking. Hmm. Yes, I can see that. That is a challenge. But you became a professor at the University of Missouri in Columbia is where you're based, isn't it? Yes. How did that happen? Because you had talked earlier about not really being interested in the degrees for what they could provide for you career-wise. So when did it start to occur to you to apply for professor jobs? Well, I burned out as a primary, secondary teacher because of all of the problems that I was dealing with. For example, I was teaching in a what they call a high-risk population school, which meant it was a school in a very low-income area of Oakland that was almost zero resources for the school. The classrooms were overcrowded. There was a lot of drugs in the neighborhood. A lot of the kids had special needs in terms of, let's say, their parents didn't come home that night and they had to get themselves to school or or their parent might have been, uh, let's say, have substance abuse problems and they were dealing with that or they might be victims of some sort of abuse. So, So teaching really meant being a substitute parent and being a therapist and being a teacher and being a counselor and sometimes even more because if if I got a call that one of my students had let's say stolen something from a convenience store then I would need to go and sort of bail them out so I don't even know the name for what that would be so I burned out doing that, and I had a child, and so I knew, well, I have to work. And it occurred to me that I had gone to school and gotten an MA and gone to school for a PhD. So I thought, wait a minute, I could, <laughs> I could teach in college. <laughs> so that's how that kind of light bulb switched on. What was your dissertation on, just out of curiosity? My dissertation was on African-American Proverbs. So, oh, wow. so my first book, African-American Proverbs in Context, was a revision of my dissertation, which had some chapters taken out and, and some new things put in. 
Do you have a favorite proverb? Um, it depends on the day. Uh, my, my favorite proverb today is uh, every mickle makes a knuckle. Every nickel makes a knuckle. Oh, mickle. So mickle, like M-I-C-K-L-E. Every mickle makes a muckle. It's a Jamaican proverb, and it just means um, every every little bit counts. <laughs> I like the sound of it, even if I didn't understand what it meant. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like moving to Missouri? Because you loved the ocean, for example. It was difficult because I don't like deciduous forest. And this is a sort of cross between deciduous forests and, and plains. I I don't like oak trees, and I don't like the feeling of trees imposing on my space. So the, the natural environment was not comfortable for me. But also the seasons. I don't like winter, and I, and I don't. I would be happy if it were 70 degrees all year long. So the, the, the snow and ice and that kind of thing, I don't like. But then culturally, it was difficult too because when I first moved here, the city of Columbia was more segregated. So there weren't as many minorities and it just wasn't comfortable. I experienced quite a bit of, um, of of racial racist attitudes from people in in different businesses and and that kind of thing. So, and I had never been in the Midwest. Like there's racism in the South, but but there's a lot of black people, which is really different than being in a. a a small city in the Midwest where you're experiencing racism and there's hardly any other black people around. So it was frightening. It sounds like it. And you say that you were part of this push for diversity within the university, but then there was no support given uh, to black professors. And there were a whole lot of new rules to follow, like don't hug people. You describe going to a faculty party and wondering why there's no dancing. Yeah. Um, so it does sound like a real adjustment, but it also sounds like you have adjusted in a way. Have you? Well, I adjusted because necessity is the mother of invention. So I adjusted, but I'm aware that in the process, I lost some things. Um, not just I lost some things, but the process of being something that you're not or not being able to be what you are over an extended period of time not only has some negative psychological effects, but it also has some physical effects. I think it affects one's health. So I do feel that um, I I adjusted, but I've paid for the the adjustment in some ways that maybe that's just sort of 
part co-reality of being a black disabled person in in the United States or probably any country really right although you do say that in some ways being a full professor which is what you are now is an ideal career for you because professors are already thought of as odd so yeah (laughs) you have some leeway there to be odd I guess yeah (laughs) and also you married again and this seems to be a very supportive relationship well yes I I this would be my third marriage right so and it is it is very supportive and my wife is very tuned into my um autism in fact she was the person who who insisted that i actually um get tested you describe what led her to suspect that you might have Asperger's. You you were very upset when people left cupboards open in the kitchen. And I think the turning point was not being able to find the soy sauce. And, and apparently you threw things everywhere and broke plates. And that's the point at which your wife realized that something was up other than just being a bit particular about how things are arranged in cupboards. That was the turning point for sure. Um, it wasn't the only thing. There were other things that uh, I don't know whether I wrote about them in the memoir or I didn't, but um, such as not being, not not having a typical response to other people's um, feelings or um, being able to seemingly just just disengage or disconnect in a way that um i would would imagine most people wouldn't be able to do um that left her feeling i wasn't i was there but i really wasn't there um so and not not being able to know what I was feeling a lot of the time, whether that was physically or or emotionally, um, just not having any ability to to know. So if someone said, "Well, how are you feeling?" I don't know. Um, things like that. I think we're all we're also kind of red flags for her. You say that you've learned to cope as a couple. Now you have your own quiet study and a flower garden, which is imbued with the spirit of your grandmother. And you try to remember that a new room is likely to be too bright or that the sink may contain a dirty dish. You say you understand how hard it is for neurotypicals to understand Aspies. But I think the book goes a long way to explaining it. It's very evocative, like I said earlier. It's very descriptive. It's not a straightforward memoir. It's very impressionistic in places. Yes. And I would say there's there's explaining and then there's people really getting it because my experience has been I can explain it and people can get it in a like uh mental mentally they can get it but then 
on some other level, it's like they don't really believe it. And so, and so when something happens, such as, let's say, I'm eating dinner with people, and then I just, without a word, get up and leave. Their their reaction is usually not to to think, oh well, this is there's something going on related to stimulation or something like that. Their reaction is usually going to be to be insulted. So I I don't I never believe I never assume people really on a gut level are going to internalize the explanations that I've given them because they they just go against their their the way that they're so accustomed to perceiving things and to inter- interpreting um, other people's behavior. Right. I understand what you mean. So we've taken up an awful lot of your time. Is there anything you want to say about your memoir that I didn't give you the chance to during the course of our interview? I, I'm Well, one thing, it, it there are moments such as when I'm talking about the things being better now and so forth, there's good days and there's not so good days. And most people, even though they might read the memoir, they I don't think they would really know what some of the bad days are like. Because they might see me in the daytime and I seem to be normal. But they, they don't see me when I get home. So, um, and I don't know that I'd want them to, but I would want them to at least imagine that there's more to to the story than what they might be see what they might be seeing when I seem quote unquote normal. I get it. Yeah, I think I have a tendency to always want things to end happily. So I guess I might have been emphasizing that a little bit in the way I was posing questions too, trying to make it all into a happy ending. (laughs) Well. (laughs) So I I apologize if I was giving that impression. I didn't necessarily, that wasn't necessarily a response to, to you saying that, but it's more of a response to my knowing, being aware that, some people may read the, the the last chapter in that way because there are, there are people who want to think that we outgrow autism and then it's not a problem anymore and it, it just doesn't work that way. Well, uh, Anand Pralad, we've taken up, like I said, a lot of your time. Before you go, I wonder if you can tell us what you're working on now or are you having a little bit of a rest? No, I'm working on two things. One is I'm working on a another creative nonfiction book which really looks at my family going back to slavery and giving voice to different members of that family in the extended sense of family who who have who had a disability of one kind or another. So, for example, 
an uncle who was a slave who had a physical disability or a cousin who was a slave who had a psychological disability. So I, I want to kind of write a, a impressionistic history of my clan going back to the slavery period by giving voices specifically to people who had disabilities. So that's one book project. And the other project, which is, is actually finished pretty much, is a collection of poems that um, all of the poems in some way explore some issue of disability, black, black disability, and um, not necessarily transgender, but non-binary or, or non, non-cisgender um, identity. So that's the second project that I'm, I'm pretty close to being finished with that one. Well, those both sound like really important works and we'll look forward to them. But in the meantime, I just wanted to thank you, Anand Pralad, for taking the time to talk with us on the New Books in Folklore podcast about The Secret Life of a Black Aspie, your memoir. And I want to thank you for taking part and remind listeners that this New Books in Folklore podcast is one of many channels on the New Books Network. So Anand Pralad, have a lovely rest of day and thank you again. Thank you, Rachel.